Hey, good morning. It's good to see y'all. Uh, my name is Brandon. If we haven't gotten to meet yet, my, I'm the director of music and liturgy. So normally I, I get the privilege and the honor of getting to lead us all through in worship through the music here every Sunday and the liturgy that we do from the stage. But today I get a, a very different honor and, and pleasure for me, and that's to teach from the Word of God. And I am extremely excited to do so because today is the final Sunday in this season of Advent that we've gotten to celebrate together before this Christmas on Saturday. And so with that, I'm going to go ahead and light this last Advent candle. Just telling everybody before this that this is the worst part of the whole sermon. Because <laughs> what if it doesn't work and what if they don't lie and so much nerves, you know? <laughs> you were right. Yeah, that guy doesn't want to turn on, so I'm going to stop now. <laughs> no, but, but speaking of that, uh, I do have a couple of announcements and reminders before we get started. Uh, the first of is, speaking of Christmas, uh, this Saturday is Christmas Eve, and we get to celebrate that together. And I just want to remind you all that we're going to have two gatherings, one at 4 p.m. on Saturday and one at 6 p.m. on that Saturday. But the next day, Christmas Day, Sunday, December 25th, we won't be having any gatherings, so we won't be meeting that day. The next Sunday, New Year's Day, January 1st, we will have one gathering at 11 a.m., and that's it. So no other gatherings on January 1st other than the 11 a.m. The other reminder I have is that Pastor Ty has been showing us these awesome videos week after week uh, of our international partners in Acts 29 because we are in this giving campaign called Beyond where we are trying to raise up to $100,000 that are all going to go beyond the walls of Grace Point to help these incredible partners and churches where there is a need of resources to ensure that the gospel continues to go forth in these harder to reach places and not only in their walls but beyond their walls in their countries as well. And so if you would like to give to that, I just want to remind you that the easiest way to do that is to look over there at that wall all the way on your left. There's some magnets over there on your way out today. Stop by, pick one up. You can scan the QR code on it. It'll take you to the online portal and you can just give as you are able because this is, this is a really great opportunity for us to really be the hands and feet of Jesus, to serve these communities, to love our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world well and to do as God has called us to, to, to be generous as he is generous, especially to those within our family. Sound good? Cool. All right, as we get started today, we're going to continue in Luke chapter 1. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to Luke chapter 1. We are going to hop around a little bit. If you don't have a Bible, I highly recommend you grab one. We have them in English and in Spanish on those silver tables around the room. You can take that home with you. That's free for you to have. If you want an online version, you can go ahead and download the Version app. That's free. Create a profile there. If you click your profile and then click events, then go to Grace Point Church. All of the sermon texts that I'm going to be working through today, they will pop up right there for you to follow along with. Now, before we get into the text for today, I'm going to put up some, some short pieces of writing on the screen. And I'm going to read all four of them to you. And when I'm done reading them to you, I want you to tell me what type of writing you all think this is. All four of these belong to the same genre of writing. I want to see if you guys know what it is. So the first one is this. It says, to be or not to be. That is the question. The next one is, I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. 
Next, we have two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the road less traveled by. And finally, here's a classic. Roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. Thanks. No. Um, <laughs> now, now, what type of writing are all four of these? Poetry, yes, perfect. All four of these, each in their own unique ways, are lasting works of poetry. Now, I'm going to show you one more piece of writing, and I want you to tell me what you think this is. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will rejoice in doing them good. What kind of writing do we think this is? Prophecy is a fair answer. Well, this is Jeremiah 32, verses 37 through 41, in case you didn't know that. And it is prophecy, but more specifically, it is also a work of poetry. And if you're hesitant with that answer, I, I totally understand that because of what we believe to be true about this genre of poetry today as 21st century people. I say this because our text for today, historically, it's been called the Benedictus by the church. It's a song written by Zechariah, and the church has used this song as a a liturgical song of praise for the past 2,000 years. But again, specifically, it's a piece of biblical poetry, and so it's key that we understand what we mean by that, and more specifically, how important biblical poetry is to what God is trying to communicate to us. So I'm going to begin today with a bit of reflection on this genre of biblical poetry, both so we can have a good foundation going into the text for today, and so hopefully you can look at these passages with a, a set of fresh eyes the next time you're in your Bibles. See, most of us nowadays, we see poetry and we think, you know, that's, that's pretty or it's very artsy, it's very well-constructed maybe, it's artistic. It rhymes. It can even be a little silly like the Dr. Seuss piece is. But more often than not, regardless of what we think about it, we will say that it's a a supplementary art form, that it's not really necessary, nor is it the ideal way to communicate something important to someone. For example, if I am promising you to to meet at Chipotle this Wednesday at 8 o'clock, I'm going to tell you that exactly. What I won't say is something along the lines of, Upon the eve of the fourth day, down the street and across the way, if nothing contrary have you to say, let us dine at Chipotle. Thank you. I know. I was riveting. I know. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) No, but all jokes aside, I I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that because it's not exact. It's not literal. It's, It's inefficient. There's too much that you still don't know. You don't know what time exactly You don't know where exactly the Chipotle is. We could be counting the days differently. Overall, it would be a silly and unnecessary way to tell you that. But scholar of the ancient Near East, which is kind of Bible times, Alan McNichol, he says this about poetry in ancient times. He says, texts recounting divine revelations have generally been highly, even exceptionally, poetic texts. This is because in the ancient world, poetry was considered the language of the gods. See, the common thought in in biblical times among all cultures, including the Greek and Hebrew ones in which the Bible was written, was that poetry was the supreme form of communication. 
Not, not silly or extra or unnecessary, but ideal for communicating the very speech of God. See, because we think nowadays, I think after the Enlightenment and, and modernism and the way science has taken over, the way we think about the world and see things, we would say, why would God communicate his, his most important messages in something as, as inexact or, or metaphor-filled or unnecessarily worded as poetry? But see, church, key biblical texts describing the, the full scope of the work of God in history for humanity, these beautiful pieces of biblical theology that are key to our understanding of who God is, he has chosen to communicate in this form of Hebrew poetry. Just some, some examples. Genesis 3.15, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. That is a line in a poem. Isaiah 9 that we read a little bit of this morning, the, the, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Poetry. The, the promise of the new covenant is a work of prophetic poetry. Even at the end, Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth where God is going to wipe away every tear and rid the world of evil, that book is full of poetry. And all of those texts carry all of, of the literary devices that are in that genre. And it's no coincidence. But see, sometimes we can be scared to say that. We can be scared to accept that these are, are quote, poems, because again, we're taking preconceptions into that. We, if we call them poems, we say, oh, you know, there's some metaphor, there's some similes, there's some exaggerations or hyperbole, so this must not be exactly what God wants to tell us. This must be the approximation of what God is trying to say, but made to sound a little prettier. No, the, the meat of what God is saying, that's in the narrative, that's in the, in the stories or in the law. I want the facts, I want the exact things that God is saying. But what I, I hope one of the things that you can take from my message here this morning is, you'll see it on the screen, is that the message of, of who God is and what he has done is not communicated in spite of its poetic form, but uniquely and exactly through that form. Like I said, it, it isn't coincidence that these all-encompassing integral messages of God's love and his promises come specifically in this form of Hebrew poetry. And I believe that there are two reasons why God has chosen to speak in this way. The first is that it facilitates an encounter with the mind and heart of God. Paul tells us in Romans 11.34, he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Now, part of what I think he's getting that there is, is that human language and, and our finite brains, our capacity for understanding, they could not bear the weight of comprehension of, of the God of the universe. We cannot bear to comprehend him. And yet, he has chosen to reveal himself in the most extravagant way he could possibly find in ancient Israel and ancient Greece. See, we miss it in English often because the words don't rhyme or they don't really seem stylistic or intentional. But in the Hebrew and the Greek, it becomes very clear that there is something in the word choice, the, the meter, the order of the words, the, the description of the promises and the actions with this larger-than-life language. There is something in it that is uniquely suited to communicate the very words of the creator of the universe. But not only are they uniquely suited to hear communication from him, they're uniquely suited to have us and to give us an encounter with God, to meet with God through these words. David Seal, scholar, he says it this way. He says, poetry persuades, not through argument alone, but through encounter. Encounter with the voice that speaks 
through the prophet. When we hear these works of poetry, we are meeting with God himself. We are not hearing the words of Jeremiah or of Zechariah. We are hearing the very words and thoughts of God in this language. The second reason why I think God has chosen to speak to us in this way is that biblical poetry is not one and done reading. What I mean by this is that often when we read our Bibles, we kind of want to be able to pop in, get a quick uplifting message, maybe a bit of encouragement or direction for our day, and then be able to go off into whatever our lives have for us, maybe five, ten minutes. I'll say that there are some texts that you can genuinely do this with in the Bible, but it is definitely not the majority, and for sure it is not biblical poetry like our text for today or like those promises of God. See, because this writing is designed, and I think God intends it to be reflected on and meditated on and read over and over again slowly so that there's a reason that these texts can be learned from for a lifetime. See, passages of law and narrative, they're important. They recount facts of history and exactitudes, right? Do, Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. Riveting. Everyone's favorite book, 2 Kings, I know. That's history, and it's good that we know it. But then you turn to these beautiful passages of of Old Testament poetry, like the ones we've seen, or or even the parables of Jesus. Again, these are ancient Hebrew or, or Aramaic poems meant to communicate in distilled form the very heart and mind of God about his kingdom and his purposes and his character. Or even our text for today, Zechariah's song, it is a beautifully composed work of poetry that captures in 13 verses the scope of redemptive history from beginning to end full of of references and allusions, poetic wording, and all of this is meant for us to, through these words, encounter the living God himself, that he might be speaking through Zechariah. So now as we turn to this text, with, with what we know about this form of biblical poetry, I would ask that you please go back and read this again. Our time here is it's not going to be exhaustive. These texts, like I said, they're meant to be read over and over again. There is more for you to learn from this text than I can get through in the next 30, 35 minutes. So please go back and read it again. But as we begin today, it's important that we remember what has come before our text. So right before where we're starting at verse 67, the passage describes the birth of John the baptizer and his circumcision and presentation in the temple. If you remember from before, Zechariah had been made mute. Well, in that passage, he gets to speak again, and he blesses God, and the people hear it. And at the end of the passage, they ask a question in verse 66. They ask, it says, All who heard them laid them up, those things that Zechariah said, in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now those around Zechariah would have only known about the birth of John, but because these opening chapters of Luke, chapters 1 and 2, are constructed almost like mirror parallels presenting John and Jesus, we as the readers at this point are also asking, who is Jesus going to be? And I think God knows this for future audiences, and so Zechariah's prophetic poetry here, it answers both who is John going to be, but primarily it actually tells us who is Jesus going to be. In the next verse, before he speaks, verse 67, it says, 
His father, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying. Now Luke specifically calls this passage a prophecy. He did not call Mary's song that Pastor Ty took us through last week a prophecy. He explicitly did not. Now, I, I want to make something very clear. All throughout the Bible, we see that men and women prophesy. They speak clear and direct communication from God to everybody. I'm just trying to say that this specific instance is not one of those. Last week, Mary's song, this is her, her emotions, her feelings, her incredible knowledge of the Old Testament all rolled up into an expression of praise toward God in that miraculous moment. This is Mary speaking to God. But by calling this prophecy, Luke tells us that these are not Zechariah's words. That as I said, these are the very words of God speaking to us through this form to express to us his heart about himself and his mission. Now, word about prophecy real quick. Often we think of prophecy as kind of fortune telling. All, all the passages about this will happen or that will come to pass. And a lot of the times we can associate it with the end times. But simply Prophecy, most simply, is God speaking a divine message about events in history either coming to pass now or that will soon come to pass in history through his people. It's, it's not some distant, far-off event. Most often, when God speaks through a prophet, he is stepping into history here and now to speak about what is happening here and now. And that is the case with this. Scholar Abraham Heschel, he describes prophecy in this way. He says, The chief characteristic of prophetic thought is the primacy of God's involvement in history. History is the domain with which the prophet's minds are occupied. They are moved by a responsibility for society, by a sensitivity to what the moment demands. And what does this moment demand? At the dawn of the most important act of love in history, Zechariah tells us as he begins in verse 68, the first two verses, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Just in these opening lines, we find already a wealth of depth. See, here he begins, blessed be, or it can also be translated, praised be. We know from the beginning that this is a song of praise to the God of Israel. But why? Because he has visited and redeemed his people. See, I believe that like with most biblical poetry, the, the crux of what God is trying to tell us, the, the main idea, so to speak, can be found both at the beginning and at the end. And I believe it's the case with this poem as well, because we start off with this praise because God has visited his people. And in verse 78, you're going to see that the final statement in the poem also begins with a sentiment about how God visits his people. And so this tells me that one of the key takeaways for us from this prophecy is that God has visited his people. He's telling us about Jesus. See, that this is what the incarnation is all about. We praise God this season because he has not remained distant. He has chosen to visit us, to draw near to us, to come close to us and to be with and among us. And that is good news for us. But he goes further. He says that he's raised a horn of salvation. Now, this is a big Old Testament reference. You probably heard it a lot. I actually didn't know what it meant until this past week, and, and I want to share it with y'all. It's very cool. 
This image of the horn, they use it a lot in the Old Testament. And it's actually a reference to what wild buffalo or oxen would do when they had defeated an enemy. So when these buffalo or oxen were engaged in a fight with another animal and they won, as a, a declaration of victory, they would sort of raise their horns in kind of a, a victory pose as a sign of their victory. And that is what Jesus, that is what the Messiah is called every time he is referenced as the horn of salvation. Jesus is the Father's raised horn. Jesus is the Father's victory pose. He, he is the sign and the seal of God's victory. And notice, this is one of my favorite things, Zechariah doesn't see these as future occurrences. These things that may come to pass or that will come to pass even, no. He sees them as facts, things that are done. He says that God has visited his people. He has raised up the horn of salvation. The deal is done. The very birth of Jesus is meant to be a proclamation that evil and the powers and principalities of this world are on a clock and that it is ticking quickly. But why has he done this? As we move forward, verses 70 through 73 tell us that it is simply in line with his faithfulness. God following through on a promise that he has done and he's doing it with a purpose. But why bind himself? Why commit himself to do such a thing as visit humanity? Well, these verses tell us. It says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. The first of these is that we should be saved from our enemies. That is a reason Jesus came. Jesus' presence among us is the very means by which our enemies are defeated. Now we'll get into who God's enemies are in this text in just a bit, but for now that's all I'll say on that. The second reason is to show the mercy promised to our fathers. Church, God sent his one and only son not to condemn the world, not to punish the world, not to judge the world, but this text tells us that he sent him to show mercy. That, that Jesus' coming is a product of the greatest act of mercy that anyone could have ever done. And the third reason is that he's done this to remember his covenant with Abraham, this promise that he made to Abraham, again, returning to his faithfulness. Now, I want us to see that promise in Genesis 22. This is what Zechariah is alluding to. God, speaking to Abraham, says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now, God does something very cool here. He, very quickly, and if you're not reading it closely, you might not notice it. See, the passage opens and it says that he's going to multiply Abraham's offspring, that they're going to be as far as the stars in the heaven and the sand on the shores. But then very quickly, he brings it in. Right after he says he's going to multiply the offspring, he says, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring, who, the, the he, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Who is the offspring of Abraham God is talking about here? Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, this is the promise 
of God being fulfilled thousands of years in the making, promised from beforehand. Church, God was faithful to his promise. And if he was faithful then, wherever you are, he is faithful now. Amen? Amen. Now, I want you to keep with you this this language that that through Jesus we're saved from our enemies because the poem's flow of thought here, it, it develops these stacking purpose statements. See, we started, we said God has visited us. Well, why? To save, to be merciful, and to, merciful and to be faithful. Well, why has he done that? The poem continues and gives us the purpose almost behind the purpose, the, the result that ought to flow from the fact that God has done these things. Zechariah tells us in verses 74 through 75, and this is the final statement in this section about the Messiah Jesus, And he tells us that he's visited us, he's saved us, he's been faithful to his promise so that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, there's there's definitely a lot here, which is the reason, this is the reason for why God has chosen to show mercy, why he sent his son, why he's visited and redeemed his people, and it's so that now that we're delivered from our enemies, we might serve him. But what does that mean to, to serve him, and why is that so important that we be able to serve God? Well, if you'll join me, we're going to go down a, a quick rabbit trail, and I, I promise it'll be worth it. If you want to turn with me to Genesis 2, or you'll see it on the screen so you can follow along, in Genesis 2, this is part of God's creation narrative. He's, he's formed the skies and the land. He's formed the humans. He plants them in a garden and Eden, and he gives them a purpose, what they were made for in this ideal state. And he says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. What I want to focus on here is, is the purpose statement, the why God did this, to work it and to keep it. These are the, uh, the Hebrew words avodah, and shamar, respectively. The one I'm going to focus on a lot is avodah. I want you to remember that one. Usually it's translated work, like it is in that passage about the garden. But it's from the root word eved, which means service or servant. And so elsewhere in the Bible, it gets translated as to serve or service. Now stay with me. The only two places, or the only other places, sorry, that these two words are linked together to describe human activity is when it's describing the work of the priests in the temple. I'll give you a few examples. In Numbers 18, 5 and 6, see if you can find where these words pop up. It says, And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I have taken your brothers the Levites from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the service of the tent of meeting. There are those words, Keep guard over the sanctuary to do the service or the work of the tent of meeting. Here's one more. When the prophet Ezekiel, in his beautiful work of prophetic poetry, is talking about how it's going to look when God restores the priesthood to its former glory from the corruption to which it had fallen. In the new heavens and the new earth, God is making this promise. And he says in Ezekiel 44, Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the temple to do all its service and all that is to be done in it. What I'm trying to get us to see here is is this connection between working the garden in Eden as God intended design for humanity in that perfect state, the connection between that 
And then the symbol that he gives us after the fall of, of people working and keeping his temple as a priesthood. Now back to our text. Does anyone want to guess what the root word of this word translated to serve is in this text? Anybody have a guess? Do we remember the word? Avodah, yes, exactly. That's it. In this text, it's written in Greek, so the word is latreoin, but that Greek word latreoin, taken from Hebrew when used to translate Hebrew text, is avodah, which connects us back to Genesis 2 and to the priesthood that we're being restored to. But this isn't anything new. Peter calls us this in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. But through this little word study in Genesis, we know that the priesthood now, it isn't just about serving in a building or, or doing religious things. No, th this is the point of that detour because I want us to see here what it is exactly that Jesus does for us in saving us from our enemies. See, the statement that we get to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness, what that's actually getting at is the fact that what Jesus is doing when he defeats our enemies is that he is restoring our very humanity to us. That we have not been whole until the first advent of Jesus. And in his birth, we have been made whole. We have been restored to what God made us to be. He is making us whole again. Able to do what we were created to do as we work and keep the temple that is his whole creation now. And we do so by showing and representing God's love and his mercy, his justice, and his compassion to it. And this is the close of, of the first half of the mission and the victory of the Messiah that's described in this text. But now, John turns, or sorry, Zechariah turns to his son, John. He says in verse 76, he says, And you, child, speaking to John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now, this is another Old Testament reference. It's from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. It says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So in this verse, we see that John's purpose, the purpose of his ministry, is to prepare the way of the Lord. But how is he going to do that? What, what is this statement that he needs to make? What do people need to know before Jesus comes that they must associate with him? Well, it says in verse 77 that what John is going to do is to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now, what has this whole poem been about? What, what has it been proclaiming that Jesus came to do? This mighty victory over our enemies and those who hate us. Well, who are those enemies? Who, who hates you? Now, if, if a human being popped into your mind when I asked who hates you, you'd be wrong. Because uh, uh, the people, God's image bearers, are not his primary enemy. And this verse reminds us of that. No, the primary enemy here is the very source of evil in this world. It becomes clear in this verse that sin and Satan, the evil powers of the world, they are the true enemy of God and he does not want us to forget that. It isn't people made in his image, but it is the enemy influencing and guiding the evil leading to sin in this world. And when our sins are forgiven, when there is no debt against us, that enemy crumbles. And that is what Jesus came to do. 
The forgiveness of sins is the victory that Christ won for us, and it is why we celebrate on Christmas. We celebrate that born is the king of Israel because through that birth, this poem tells us that he has done it. It is finished. There is no record of debt against us. We are free. And finally, the poem continues and it ends by saying that our sins are our failure to be who we were meant to be and, and the hurt that this has caused God and his creation, and that it's forgiven. But why? Another purpose statement. It says, because of the tender mercy of our God. And what does that look like? It says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. There it is, wrapped up in a nice bow. We come back to the idea that the mercy of God is most fully seen in that he would visit us. Not deserving, not, not worthy of it, and, and yet he would not stay away. He would not get rid of us. He would rather visit us. And why? To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. But we have to ask, who are those people? See, a, a careless reading of this poem and a knowledge of, of how the Israelites might have functioned in ancient times might lead you to believe that Zechariah means this poem only for Israel. But you see, this final line makes it very clear because not only is this a prediction of who Jesus is, it is also telling us who Jesus is for. See, church, yes, the, the Messiah, as he said earlier in the poem, is from the house of David, but he is for everybody. Everybody sits in darkness and in the shadow of death. Humanity faces the groans of a creation subject to death and to darkness. We all experience this together. And Paul describes this and, and why God would allow us to sit in this way. In Romans 11:32, it says, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And so the poem concludes with this reminder that the beauty of what God has done in mercy and the victory that he has come to claim is most distinctly seen in the birth of Jesus. Come to visit his people. And, and who are his people? Everybody. Humanity that is sealed in the shadow of death, sitting in the darkness, waiting for the light to shine upon them. And that's the poem. But see, if, if you continue reading in the book of Luke, and if you keep going into the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, he wrote Luke and Acts kind of as one two-volume coherent work to tell a story, what you'll find is that it doesn't really look like these things come true. See, if, if you keep reading, Jesus is murdered. And then he rises from the dead, yes, but in Acts we see that the Jewish leaders don't receive him. They don't believe in him, let alone everybody. Everybody definitely doesn't follow Jesus. And so what gives? Right? Where, where's the victory? Where's the ox raising his horn as a sign and seal of the defeat of the enemy? Well, another aspect of Jesus' mission in his first advent is this. Isaiah 53 tells us he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that has brought us peace. 
and with his wounds we are healed. See, with this, this song and Mary's song filled with imagery of, of strong and powerful victory over the powers, they lay at the beginning of Luke's gospel, I believe, because they are meant to set the tone for the rest of the story as you read it. You are meant to read these in light of the end. But do, do, do we think that this priest and prophet of God, Zechariah, that he didn't know his Bible well? That, that he, he missed this description of the Messiah when he was thinking of his prophecy? No, I believe that he most certainly did not. And I, in fact, think that this image is foundational to his view of the victory of Christ over the powers, you see, because many expected him to come like a king of the world with an army, lording his strength, pummeling his opponents, pillaging and burning down Rome and installing himself as its dictator and conqueror. And yet, how often do we still expect God to work like this? How often do we seek this victory for ourselves, victory by the world's means, through, through power, through conquest, through asserting our, our own strength and making sure that nobody takes advantage of us? That that's, that's how we make sure we win. We get ours and the Christians stay on top. Why do we want the Christians to stay on top? That doesn't look like Jesus. And yet we fight we claw, we are mean, we are angry doing these things all so that we might win how the world wants us to win. And yet a full reading of scripture that takes Zechariah's song alongside this servant's song in Isaiah has to reframe entirely our view of strength, our view of what it means to have victory over our enemies, of what it means to serve God. When we rightly read this text, it shows us that yes, as Zechariah says, victory has been secured. The birth of Jesus guarantees that it has happened and yet it will not come as we want it. Jesus will show us what it, it, what it means to attain victory over sin and that is not to conquer as the world does but to do so in humility. He came born of a virgin in a manger, poor and weak and defenseless and humble and he continued to live his life like that until he was murdered. That is the example that he set for us. He bore the iniquity of others. He did not count it against him. He laid those things before the Father. And upon his cross, nailed, beaten, and bruised, he did not say, strike them down, Father, because they are evil and twisted and sick and they know exactly what they're doing. No, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They don't know any better. That is the example of Jesus. And in that church, the Bible says that Jesus one, that that was the victory, that was the defeat of the enemy. One of my favorite passages of scripture and one of my favorite books in the Bible, Colossians 2 verses 13 through 15 says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. That is the cross, that on the cross Jesus put to open shame our true enemies. Now church, remember that this text today, as prophetic poetry, not only does it describe a visitation from God, 
but rather it is in and of itself a visit from God as he speaks not only to the immediate audience, but to future audiences as well who listen to this song, church. Hear the voice of God in these lyrics. He is speaking to us good news of great joy this season. The advent of Jesus, his mission that led him to the cross, and this song of Zechariah, they show us that the victory is won and that we are to follow in this human example of Jesus serving God by being who he created us to be, his image bearers that we have been restored to to serve him, reflecting his kindness, his mercy, his love, and his justice, not as the world shows it, self-servingly or overpoweringly with no regard for the other, but rather by laying down our lives for each other, following Jesus into death, up out of the grave, that we might stand in the light that has shined upon us in the darkness. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you that you did it to show mercy, to save us from our enemies as this great act of faithfulness to your promises, all so that we might be free to serve you, to, to be what you've called us to be. Holy Spirit, now help us and guide us and lead us. Turn our hearts toward Jesus. Let his ways of, of humility, of love, and of mercy become irresistible to us, God the light that has shone in the darkness. Let us not continue in darkness, but let us look to his light and the victory won for us. God, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.